History Makers with Matt Prater. Coming off of drugs, you're going to have emotional problems, but I kept chasing after God. And he's using this vehicle to bring people out of the dark into the light. And I went forward and I knelt at the front, and it, it was a radical conversion experience. And that's where the big change happened, and that's where we decided we're going to use our music for God, we're going to change our songs. When I was about 25 year old, I was uh, busted and into jail, and it was there that I came to the Lord. History Makers with Matt Prater. It's my pleasure to finally have a chat with uh, somebody who I've really admired, uh, making some great music through the years, and it's uh, Chuck Gerard from his, I, I guess, your home in California. Good evening, Chuck. Hi, yes. No, I moved to Tennessee. Um 16 years ago. So oh, I'm okay. out in California today, but uh, yeah, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Tennessee boy now. Oh, okay. Right. That's, that's pretty much really the hub of music, isn't it? In America nowadays where everyone seems to do their recordings. It pretty much is, you know, it all shifted. There's not that much of a scene in LA anymore or New York. So yeah, uh, very big music scene here for not just country, but for all kinds. Well, I thought yeah. we I thought we'd catch up because you've brought out your um, autobiography, Rock and Roll Preacher. So let's uh, see in this short uh, amount of time if we can sort of cover some of your life. Sure. Now, I know that uh, in the early days there was the Castells, which I guess for our Australian audience wouldn't mean too much. But certainly uh, when you were in your early 20s, we do remember the Hondells particularly because of the song Little Honda. Would that, be a, would that have been your sort of first claim to fame? Well, uh, in the States, uh, Castells were not the hugest group. You know, we, our, our records landed in the top 20, and we had in some cities you're number one for a while. But, yeah. uh, you know, we had a moderate uh, impact. But then with the, uh, the little Honda record, it went into the top 10, and it was more of a catchy tune and all that, you know. So uh, and I think probably it had a more international uh, appeal because people were into the surf thing all over the world, you know, and the hot rod music was kind of a thing at that time. Yeah. So yeah, it was. Uh, it was. Let me put it this way: it's my only gold record. So there you go. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we'll move uh, now into sort of like the mid '60s. So Chuck's now sort of a hippie. The hair's growing longer. You're caught up in the drug culture. Tell us a bit about that period. Yeah. Well, I was uh, at the pretty much the early part of the the hippie thing. Um, well, you know, a third of the way in, uh, I became interested in the whole scene where when. Uh, it started to gain media attention. And I was wondering what was wrong with all these, these people that were growing their hair along, trying to look like Jesus and, you know, taking drugs. And I, I was pretty straight at that time. I was in, I was into alcohol, but I really hadn't had any other drugs in my life at that point. But I got very curious about it. And then I graduated into marijuana. Strangely, being in the music scene in those days, it wasn't really a, a common thing to have people publicly smoking marijuana, you know, it was more of a, of a, a private thing. And, uh, but it began to become more public with, you know, the advent of the hippie movement and all the uh, media attention that was given to the drug scene. And then I got a hold of LSD and uh, it was kind of like that was all she wrote. I, I just decided I needed to, to find out more about life and God and uh, started reading the Bible and uh, got hooked up with a a bunch of similarly minded seekers and uh it wasn't really a commune we didn't uh, well we did for a little while we lived together it was it was just a house we rented you know it wasn't like a communal scene but uh we, we were 
all seeking God together. And there's a lot to that story that's in the book. Yeah. Uh, moving to Hawaii and Salt Lake City and different cities looking for uh, like-minded people to find out what was going on in the world. And then eventually winding back up in Southern California. Not really. I mean, we did a lot of study, but we weren't really finding the answers we needed. We were kind of narrowing it down to Jesus. I, I knew in my in my own life, I knew that uh, uh, Jesus had to have some part in whatever I, I landed on. But uh, I was studying all the Eastern philosophies, and you know, George Harrison was into Hinduism, and because of, of the Beatles and other people that were coming out with different philosophies, it was very public now to discuss those kind of things, and spirituality became kind of a more of a, you know, I was raised where you don't, you don't talk about religion or politics. Yeah. And then all, all of a sudden that kind of swung in the, in the mid sixties. And so, uh, we wound up back in LA and we started to hear about this place called Calvary Chapel and, uh, you know, picking up a hitchhiker along Pacific coast highway. And usually we would do that so we could get some free drugs. And then all of a sudden we're picking up people that are asking us, if we know Jesus, you know, and they're hippies. Yeah. We're going like, wow, you know, yeah, we don't know Jesus, but uh, we want to. And they started talking about their church. Calvary Chapel was coming all the time because that was sort of the only hippie church at that time. So, so eventually we made our way up to Calvary Chapel and, uh, you know, uh, the gospel message got to our hearts and we became Christians and started the group Love Song. My guest is Chuck Gerard. He's got a new book out called Rock and Roll Preacher. Talks about his life. Chuck, just getting back to our interview. So we're talking about Calvary Chapel. And uh, just to sort of um, give a little bit of insight to our uh, Australian listeners, and I'm familiar with Calvary Chapel, but it's always intrigued. So you've you've pretty much got the, the founder being Chuck Smith, based there in, um, uh, would it be Costa Mesa? What, what's the main, what was the main... Uh, church at the time. Yeah, it was right on the border of Costa Mesa, okay. Santa Ana, but okay. they called it Calvary Chapel, okay, Costa Mesa, right. yeah. Now, here's a guy, you know, he's balding, he doesn't really look that cool for uh, that period of time, so... <laughs> What was that appeal? I even heard stories that uh, uh, there was a, there were a lot of young people, hippies coming into the church. One of the stories I heard, and some of the older folk were complaining, "Oh, you know, their belts are you know scratching the pews." So uh, Chuck said, "Well, we'll just take out the pews, and they can sit on the carpet or wh- whatever it was." But tell us, um, what was it about uh, Chuck Smith and Calvary Chapel that had such appeal? Well, you almost got that story right. It was actually their shoes. They came in with bare feet, and they didn't want to wreck the rug. So oh, okay. Chuck said, let's pull the rug up. Okay, yeah. right. Well, here's the deal. The, a lot of that appeal to the hippies was Lonnie Frisbee, who was the yeah. first hippie preacher in Calvary, yeah. and, that, and that's okay. a longer story. But uh, we were attracted to Lonnie and the fact that they they didn't really have a band like us yet, but they had they had some contemporary music already going before we played there. Right. We went because we... We, we felt like it was so different from the, you know, I was raised in a very uh, legalistic dom- denominational background and this was real free and you didn't have to dress up and they accepted the hippies. So uh, it was very attractive to the hippie mentality. But the first time I went, I believe Chuck did speak, Chuck Smith, and you're right. He's a, you know, 42 year old balding man. And I was kind of disappointed and I thought, no, nah, I want the hippie. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Chuck was the man of the hour and uh, really spoke to my heart. In fact, that was, the, that, that was the night I actually turned my life over to the Lord. I don't even remember what he preached, but God got a hold of my, my heart that night. 
with him in the pulpit, not Lonnie. But then, uh, you know, it was it was a, a it was it wasn't really it hadn't really broken loose yet, broken open. It was still a hundred, hundred fifty people, and a lot of them were not hippies. Oh, okay, and. Uh, but the the when we started playing, uh, what I'll t- a real quick version of that story, how we started playing was uh, we saw the potential for our music there at Calvary, and uh, because we saw that there was a, another hippie preacher as well as Lonnie, and we thought, wow, they have a hippie preacher now. If they have some you know musicians that look like you know Pink Floyd, it could be really cool. And we were already writing songs that could fit right in, so we uh, we went to visit, uh, we went to meet with Pastor Chuck. Uh, we just walked into the, the, the church office on a, on, a, on a Wednesday and asked the secretary if we could talk to Chuck. And he came out to the, to the sanctuary and interviewed us for a while. And at the end of it, um, he asked us to play a song. And so we played, I think we played, well, I know we played Welcome Back. And it isn't even really a song that lyrically related to him, but the spirit moved and fell on him and he was really touched. And the next thing we knew, he invited us to play that night. Well, one of our guys was, in jail, but he was, you know, he was doing weekends. Uh, it, it sounds, it, it was a Wednesday, but if you, if your livelihood was on weekends, you could serve your weekend from Monday through Wednesday. So we went and got our, our guitar player out of jail about six o'clock and made it by seven and played for the first time. And actually, not, I'm not saying it was because Love Song played, but it seemed like all the elements were in place and the place just, just blew open. The doors blew open at that point and the church, I'm not exaggerating now, grew from about two, 200 to 2,000 in literally four months' time. And they had to uh, put up the circus tent. They could only accommodate three or 400 people and not even comfortably. They had to put them outside with speakers outside, you know, it was a, a, a real scene. It was exciting and wonderful. Yeah. And uh, then we went to the tent while they built the new sanctuary, and uh, it continued to grow. And when at Chuck's death, there was probably twelve to 15,000 going there, uh, you know, on three services on Sunday. Just that, that, that period of time that we're talking about, I actually remember this is probably later 70s, so I go to visit America. I went to Calvary Chapel, and I, I got to hear Greg, Greg Laurie, who's still about and uh, very, of course, well-known. We've got him on Vision Christian Radio. Does, he, does that ring a bell in those early days too? Oh, yeah. I was instrumental in the Greg's salvation. And, ah. uh, so, yeah, we're tight. We're friends. And, uh, yeah, he. a lot of those early guys went on to pastor great churches. Continuing our conversation with Chuck Gerard, author of Rock and Roll Preacher, telling all about his life. About ni- 1975, the first self-titled album comes out. And I think... Uh, for for uh, us down under, that was the one where we're really exposed and 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 fall in love with the music of Chuck Gerard. I had a mate uh, during that time driving around a combi covered with Jesus stickers, and he'd, he'd arrived playing Chuck Gerard full bore on his sound, on his sound system. All those those uh, great songs. So let's just. Uh, a touch on that one, the the, the self titled album seventy five memories of that. Right, yeah. Well, you know, I, at Love Song was getting a little bit. Um, we were we had so much talent in the band, and there was such a huge impact from the group. And what to put on the record became an issue. You know, you didn't have 
space you do on a CD. And I had a lot of material laying around that was never going to get recorded. I thought maybe, you know, so I thought, well, I, you know, I could start a little solo thing going here and I could still be in the group. But one thing led to another. And uh, around 1974, we all mutually and amicably decided to disband. I already had the album started and then uh, finished the album. It came out in 1975. And because of the song, Sometimes Hallelujah, really, it's very hard to break out of a group identity, as you know, with many groups who have disbanded and they do solo albums, but they'll never be as big as the actual group was. And it's very hard to to kind of break out of that identity of a group that's had such an impact. But that song was strong enough to where uh, it brought people's attention to my record. People started, you know, radio stations started to play it. So it crossed me over into being a solo artist in a very comfortable way, which was really cool for me because it was almost like I didn't have to work my way back into it, you know. So it was kind of a a real wonderful uh, transition to becoming a solo artist. And I really feel feel it was the, the hand of the Lord taking me out of the group situation and uh, I didn't really have that struggle to become a, a solo artist. Uh, and it was also really uh, kind of um, liberating to be, you know, it was wonderful to be in the group. So don't misunderstand what I'm going to say, but it was also wonderful to be able to hire the greatest players in the world to do your song. Wow. Uh, you know, Hal Blaine and the Wrecking Crew, those kind oh. of guys, Glenn Campbell played on my record. So uh, it was a new experience in that regard, too, of, of, of really kind of more, instead of just making records with a band, making records. You know, which was really a, a fun transition for me because I love the studio. So it was a good move for me on all counts, and God blessed it. And that's what I've been doing since 1975, doing my solo music and uh, preaching. That's why I'm a rock and roll preacher. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and teaching and all that. You know, I built, I branched out because I love the Bible, and uh, I discovered worship in 1980 in a very personal yes. way, and I began to do seminars. And so, you know, it was a good transition uh, of of, I believe, just growth, which I think artists need to grow. I, I was never that guy that <clears throat> made the uh, the same album twice, you know, like some of them do. They think that formula worked, let's do it again. So it was, it's been an exciting thing to, it was, a, it was a new experience for me to have the freedom to just kind of choose my musicians, do whatever I wanted. I didn't have a lot of industry oversight because there really at that time wasn't really a very strong contemporary Christian scene yet. So the uh, now my daughter uh, years later came, was in a group called Zoe Girl. Yep, you've covered and that question. We saw a different yeah. side of the yeah. The industry had really become an industry now, and there was a lot more oversight, you know, industry oversight to their music. But I, I enjoyed uh, creative freedom. I was never told I couldn't put a song on an album. It was a great time of creativity and change for me. Yeah, okay, musically and spiritually. Yeah. All right, so we're, there's, there's a lot to cover, Chuck. I mean, we could get into the 80s and uh, some wonderful music. As you say, you moved into uh, more of the, the worship songs, which was great. I remember um, using The Fold. I wrote this uh, stage play uh, you know, about you know, gospel stage play, just, just one we did in the church. And I thought, oh, that'll be a good song. So we used part of that. Um, there was the stand. So encouraging listeners to um, perhaps go to your website where they can uh, access your music. Would that be right? Well, uh, more on places like Spotify yeah, okay. and you know, the, you know, iTunes. iTunes. Yeah. We don't have anything actually on the website that you can listen to, but it's all over the YouTube as well. Yeah, so that's well, that's you right. Can, you can find me. So there's a lot there. I think we've, we've, we've covered uh, quite a bit of your career. Well, we didn't even really get into the 80s and, and, and 90s, but the book, 
the book will tell it all, Rock and Roll Preacher. Thank you very much for your time, sir. Absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to hear this conversation again, listen online anytime at historymakersradio.com. You'll also find links to all of our social media channels and you can subscribe to our iTunes podcast. History Makers is a faith-based ministry and we want to thank everyone for their generous support. If you've got a suggestion of anyone we should interview, send us an email, info at historymakersradio.com. God bless. I'm Matt Prater and my challenge to you now is to go and make history. Matt Prater's latest book is now available. History Makers, devotions, downloads and dad jokes. It will take you on a journey through God's Word and will hopefully give a few laughs along the way. It's just $15 plus postage. Order now at historymakersradio.com. Discounts available for bulk orders. The heart behind this book is to challenge people to get into the habit of daily devotions with Jesus. Find out more at historymakersradio.com. Station sponsor.